Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Enterprise Sales Development Podcast, brought to you by Science Technologies. We interview outbound leaders at fast-growth businesses to learn their secrets and bring you actionable insights. Thanks for joining us this week. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Enterprise Sales Development. I'm Eric Quanstrom, the CMO at Science. Today's episode is... A fast-paced one, I'm not going to lie. There's a lot of fast talking, and (laughs) you may even want to slow it down as opposed to listen to it on double speed, because our guest today is Alex Levin, the co-founder at Regal.io, Regal Voice. And frankly, the reason why I'm recommending you slow it down is because there are pearls of wisdom throughout this discussion. Alex comes to us, and for those that aren't familiar, Regal is taking the B2C world by storm, largely based on their technology that rethinks the phone channel approach for B2C clients. But Alex does not come to this conversation as a one-trick pony. Prior to Regal, he spent uh, over half a decade at Angie, the NASDAQ-listed, publicly traded, former Angie's List, shares a ton of valuable hard-won lessons on how to learn kind of like by going through the rabbit hole yourself first from your customers, uh, developing a minimum viable product, how to run sales. And there's some really, really great tips and takeaways too for anyone who is running a sales team and needs to think through kind of like some of the pitfalls and some of the things to avoid. And you should definitely listen all the way up to the very end of the episode because he gives some invaluable expertise on how to deal best with customers, including those that aren't having a great experience with your brand. So without further ado, I'm going to get to it because this episode will knock your socks off. Here's Alex. So I'm back with Alex Levin. And Alex, you, you've got a really interesting product on your hands. You've raised a ton of money for it recently in the market. It's kind of stirring up the B2C space with your way in which you're addressing the oldest technology in the stack, right? The phone with Regal Voice. Tell us a little bit about what you've got going on. Yeah, it's definitely a bit back to the future. So on the B2C side, if you remember a few years ago, you know, people had stopped using direct mail entirely. And then a few companies had started reinvigorating direct mail by bringing a lot of the technology from marketing automation and sort of digital marketing channels into direct mail to make it much more effective. And it's become really prevalent. Uh, to some extent, we're doing a similar thing. So we're taking a channel that no one had looked at for 20 years and everyone had said was gone. Uh, I think we had this realization that actually customers enjoy having this conversation with a brand when they can't get what they want online, when it's something about your health, your wealth, your kids, your pets, your car, your house, you know, more complicated things. Actually having a conversation is, is good for disambiguating complicated topics and getting the answer much faster. And so all we did is said, look, let's rethink this channel from the beginning and not sort of take the old way of, you know, spam people, call them as many times as possible, as fast as possible. Let's ask ourselves, what is going to lead to a very high engagement to something that customers love and is going to be useful for brands? So you know, we brand actually every call and text that you're getting. So you know who it is that is calling you, which is very cool. Uh, you know, We're making sure that we're using a journey builder or marketing automation orchestration to trigger the calls and texts at the right moment with the right message. You can do A-B testing to see what works and what doesn't. You know, in the end, like success is you're calling them once at exactly the right moment with the right message, not this world that was created where you're calling somebody a hundred times from a number they don't recognize. Yeah. And I think that there's probably a ton of lessons in there for the B2C sp- or the B2B space. And that's an area that you've got a bit of experience too. So I'd love for you to kind of talk a little bit about, you know, kind of your time 
whether it was on the enterprise side of Angie's List. Give a, give a little perspective on, you know, you, you've come to Regal now and you're conquering B2C, but give some of the lessons learned, if you will, that B2B could apply, especially around the phone. Oh, for sure. So I should say up front, I am not a traditional B2B uh, go-to-market leader. So my background is as a product manager and then a, uh, a marketing leader on the B2C side. Uh, in the end, at Angie, even though most of our business was B2C, we built a business selling to the major retailers. So uh, we had a B2B motion, a very significant enterprise B2B motion, where we sold to, in the end, you know, the largest retailers in the US. So Walmart, Target, Costco, Lowe's, uh, you know, so on and so forth, all the way to very innovative folks online like a Wayfair, things like that. And when they sold product, they would attach a service installation to it from Angie. And uh, so the customer could, instead of buying a box that was delivered to their home or that they brought home, they could buy an installed product, whether it was a fan or a fence or whatever it may be. And so that's where I started to learn about sort of how sales motion work. And you know, now at at, uh, at our current company at Regal, we we obviously are more mid market, so more traditional mid market or upper mid market motion. Uh, the the thing I tell people first is, you know, while enterprise is great and, and we can talk about it, actually mid market is is a lot of fun because you get many more shots at bat. So in enterprise, you know, there's only one target, there's only one lows, and so you know you might work for two years to get that one meeting, and you better not make a mistake. Whereas in mid market, you have much more opportunity to test and iterate and try different things. Uh, overall, I'd say like what 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 I've sort of uh, appreciated more now is that a lot of what we learned on the B 2 C side can be applied to B 2 B, like you're saying. So I'll give you like a few small examples. One that I learned early is you got to tell somebody what you're doing about seven or eight times before they go and listen to you. So in B2C, the way this comes out is if you're going to do marketing, don't spread your dollars thin across you know, the whole country. Pick one block, literally a block in right. New York City. Make sure your you know, Google ads are targeted to that zip. Make sure you're doing a display ad in that area. You're on the subway in New York. that You're doing direct mail to that person. You have a street team. All of a sudden, that person two weeks later goes, what is this company I, that I've never heard of? How come they're the biggest player ever? Well, you're not the biggest player, but you've done a very good job of making sure you stay very top of mind for that person. Uh, so in B2B, the same thing is true. Find out who your ICP is, be in that person's you know, feed on LinkedIn, at the conference they go to, at the coffee shop that they're going to visit, whatever it may be, you can construct a world where they all of a sudden think you are it. So I think that's one great one. By the I way, think- that what you're, what you're talking about is the classic surround strategy, which you know yeah. marketers know is the rule of seven, which is you can't get any kind of awareness until somebody like it hits them that, oh my gosh, this is over and over and everywhere, isn't it? It's yeah, perception. For sure. Perception for sure. And then the other piece I learned from being in the, in the home services space is at the beginning, when we started selling to these big retailers, we went to them and said, we have this brilliant idea. You should sell services. And like big thumb, no one listened to us, nobody cared. And what we learned over time is we needed to position very differently. We needed to go into these very senior folks at the top of the organizations that, and we literally would show them a picture of a box in the person's home. And we'd say, this is what you're selling today, the box. And then we'd show them another picture and we'd show the finished room, beautiful, everything very nicely done. We'd say, this is what you what a customer wants, right? A customer wants this finished thing. So stop just selling the box and start selling the finished thing. And to do that, you need a service as part of what you're you're offering. And there was a light that went off in people's head and they all said, yes, of course, we need to do that. And then the gate would open for them to start selling services inside the organization. And so I think same is true, obviously, in the current uh, organization that we're in. I think especially for organizations that are not doing phone sales today. 
it's not like they're already thinking about phone sales. So there's some, there's a big swath of companies already doing phone sales. But for those that are not, you know, you have to, you know, position that for them in a way where they understand how powerful it is. And you have to say, look, you know, are you hitting your growth goals this year? And if you're not, you know, what are the channels that you're going to test that are going to get you there? And, you know, what is your perception of phone sales? Well, if your perception is that it's low engagement and very expensive, you'd be shocked to learn that actually, in this case, we have a 35% answer rate on average. So, you know, uh, it's approximately 3x what an SMS engagement is and approximately 10x what an email engagement is. So much higher than our channels. And actually, it's cheaper than any of the paid marketing channels you have, right? Because even though, yes, there's a human being, because you're engaging at a very sort of high intent moment in the funnel, because it's a human conversation, you can convert, you know, one in 10 conversations at, you know, five to $10 a conversation. So it ends up being a cheaper channel. So it's, I think Gong is a company that's done this very well, where they mm-hmm. position themselves and said, look, you are a fantastic company. You think you're doing everything right, but you're not. And let us talk about why you're not doing that. And so again, to the positioning point, I think whether B2C, B2B is really an important part of what you're doing. Boy, you know, what you just said gave me flashbacks to kind of what a commercial insight is at the heart of a challenger sale, right? Like it's the things that either you take for granted that you're currently doing or not doing in your current business that are right in front of your face every single day and hidden in plain sight. Yeah. 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 And then the last, I say the last one that I, has, has always been useful for me. And you know, this originally came from, let's say, Y Combinator, do things that don't scale. Mm. I think there's, you know, there's too many people that have been in orgs that work and they see what works and they come to a new org and they try to just create the same process that they saw last time. I, I, I highly encourage people at Regal and other places to think of their experience in the past as a starting point, but not as the ending point. Don't try to automatically recreate what we had last time. Instead, think about a starting point and go and do things that you know are very manual at the beginning to find out as fast as you can whether the go-to-market motion that you have now is the same as before or different. 90% of the time, it's going to be different. You're going to find out that it was wrong. So go out and you know take that as a starting point, go and iterate on it and find the right thing before you go start trying to create process around it. And I think, you know, I've made the same mistake as other people where I've made process too fast and I've made process too slow. So it's not like I have the one answer. I think generally, though, I see people who who are coming to early stage sales orgs trying to create process too fast based on what they've read online or based on what worked at their last company. So maybe take this um, personal, especially because you're the co-founder of Regal Voice. And what were some of the things that you did that didn't scale or that were very manual that you really learned from and made perhaps all the difference in the world. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, the, maybe the best example is I sold the first 3 million in AR myself. There was no sales, no marketing, no anything. And so I had hundreds of conversations with customers. And every day, you know, I'd come back to my co founder and say, This is what I learned. This is what I learned. This is what I learned. And so that enabled us to, to be much, much closer to really the product we need to build. We are even, I'd say, a little bit, my co-founder and I are even a little bit more extreme on that side. We believe yeah. that at the beginning, a very early stage company should not be building product. So there's this sort of way of building a company where you spend your first year building product and then you go to market. We believe that instead, you know, at the very beginning, make a deck showing the product that you would build and take that to customers and get the feedback directly from customers. You know, if you have that moment, that opportunity, you're going to get great feedback. If somebody wants your product, they're going to be jumping across the table telling you, you know, hey, here's $10, whatever, $10,000 for your product, whatever it is. And you're going to have to back off and say, well, we don't have it yet. We'll have it in three months. Do you want it? That's the motion that you want. 
I think people waste a year often making a product to go and have that conversation. They could just make a deck to have that conversation. Do you feel as though that that kind of concepting is very similar to what Eric Rees would talk about in a minimum viable product type? Um, yeah, it's even before a minimum viable product, especially in B2B. So in B2C, you can't really take a deck and go talk to people and ask them what they want. You can't a bit, but it's much harder. But in yeah. B2B, you literally can go to the people who have the problem you're talking about, who are spending big dollars to solve that problem and put something in front of them and talk about what it is that they need to solve that. Now, you as the entrepreneur needs to make a decision of how much, how big the market is, you know, how much demand there's going to be for this product outside of the one person you're talking with. But, you know, to your point on unscalable things, that's a great thing to be doing for your first year. Go have a hundred of these conversations. Get people who say, I am going to buy this product if you do X, Y, and Z, and then build the product. You know, it's funny. One of the things that I I don't feel is talked about enough in sales development, especially for early stage companies, is what you learn through direct response, what you actually learn from those conversations. In fact, maybe you can even open the window in the world of that first 3 million of ARR that you just talked about. Like, Maybe give a a non-obvious insight that you maybe thought one thing about, but actually talking to you know your first x number of customers kind of disabused you of that notion and turned you in like a full 180. Yeah, I mean I'll give you a few examples that are these are very specific to us but still maybe helpful for folks. So one is we thought that so our experience at coming at this problem start there was that we were at the at this company in the home services space Angie that owns Angie's list and home advisor and all these brands and we thought that you know we were doing a great job by not having phone sales. And we learned actually that customers needed that as a way of engaging and it massively improved our conversion and revenue. So we thought that our market was going to be largely that greenfield market going after what you were calling the challenger sale, but truly people not doing phone sales. As we got into it, we learned that actually there's a lot of industries where they knew this. And when we told them how important phone sales were, they go, duh, of course, this is a very important part of our business, which is a fantastic thing to learn. So their challenge was that they didn't have any tooling that would allow them to do more sophisticated things in that channel to drive more revenue from what from this channel they were already using. And so that was a huge opportunity for us uh, very early. Rather, rather going after sort of a sale where we had to um, educate everybody, we could already right. start people that are educated. So that was so one maybe, of the learning. Would it be sorry to interrupt, but would it be fair to say that that what you learned was you were actually going after people who believed the story, but maybe were, for lack of a better way of putting it, like the province of what we would normally assume to be incumbent laden um, businesses yeah, that, and, and just, I think the popular talk track of, you know, phone is dead and, uh, you know, no one answers the phone it is just wrong. Like, I think, you know, what happened is that the first generation of businesses that came online were very standard retail businesses where it's fine to show a picture and a review and a price and for customer service, it's fine to basically automate as much as you can and deflect people away from human conversations. But the other half of the consumer economy are what I would consider high consideration purchases where you know it's insurance, lending, education, healthcare. You know, and if you're think of education, if you're sort of looking online for some school and you can't go and visit the campus for one reason or another and you can't find what you want online, what channel do you want to use to engage with that that organization? Is it, you know, a, a bot? No, of course not. You know, is it uh, you know, some website help center, of course not. Like the most effective thing is going to be a conversation. And 
in, in sort of education, people have figured this out long before us and were very smart about it. What they were lacking is the tools to do anything uh, more nuanced in that channel to drive incremental revenue. Boy, I'll tell you what, as the parent of a senior in high school who actually, <laughs> I guess the, the apple doesn't fall for, far from the tree. I forced my senior to call some of the schools that we were going to tour a few weeks back. And it was shocking to me, the lack of preparation or even phone conversation, phone readiness would probably yeah. be a better way of talking about these schools and their kind of like receptivity to actually even having a conversation with a prospective buyer, aka yeah. student. <laughs> oh, for sure. And then the other big, without getting into all the way specifics, the other big learning was around the product roadmap. We had an idea of what we thought the product roadmap would be, particularly on a few features. We had a pretty strong opinion of what we needed to build. We basically learned that we could wait on a number of the big features mm. we thought. And on the features that we were going to then build, getting that feedback uh, allowed us to get it right the first time, like I was talking about, instead of doing it again and again. The only thing I think uh, I would have made it better, I, I was given a piece of advice sort of a little bit too late that I, you know, I give it now to others is when you're that early, yes, do it yourself as a founder, actually go have the conversations, but go in and hire a very smart, you know, junior salesperson who can help you with setting up the meetings, doing the follow-up, doing some ICP work, maybe making some case studies and things. It would have made me much more effective if I'd had that extra resource than yeah. I could have been on my own. There were weeks where I didn't do anything because I had other projects on my plate. So I think it would have made me even more effective to have that. That's really interesting. Would you mind going into any kind of like detail just so we could put some meat on the bones of like, what features did you think were really important and then what could wait based on conversations? Yeah, a few things. So at the beginning, you know, we have different end users within the organization. Companies stream data to us. We have a lot of integrations that we need to have with data sources and, and we work with their data teams. We managers that are using us to you know build different sets of call and SMS cadences and test them and they have a set of needs. And then we have agents who are in the product every day. There's some other ones, but start with those. I think what we learned is the managers were perfectly willing to let us on the back end set up tests for them. So at the mm. very beginning, like the first few months, we did not even have a marketing automation journey builder. We would we would have it on the back end. We didn't have sorry, I should say we didn't have a front end that a brand could use to set up marketing automation. We had it behind the scenes, but we didn't build the front end for a couple of months because we found that they were perfectly happy to say, hey, I'd like to create an A-B test with these characteristics and we would do it for them. But it was very important that we had the tool for the agents so they couldn't do anything every day. So obviously, we built the tool for the agents first and then delayed the front end for the journey builder for a few months till we actually you know, were a little further along. That's actually super insightful. And, and I guess in common sense, it makes a, a lot of sense that you would build for those who would actually have to use the product, get feedback from the front lines, and then more of the strategic elements could come at a later date. Yeah, another good example is on the reporting side. So early days for reporting, we basically uh, we had all the data and we would just run the reports for them and send it to them. You know, we wasn't until much later in the cycle that we built a fully functional reporting suite where they could build all their own reporting dashboards. The value again of doing those two features, both the building of a journey and the reporting as a service rather than as a product, we learned very quickly what was important to customers. We we're much closer to them. So that as we built those products out, we built them correctly. I think there's a lot of you know journey builders out there or um, reporting suites that are pretty badly built, large part because they weren't built for anybody. They they were just a thing on a checklist where 
If somebody said an enterprise buyer wants reporting, so we build it. Well, you know, they didn't build the right thing. Boy, truer words have never been spoken. I won't name names, but most reporting tools out there that you can hook your caboose up to are so full featured as to be almost like what do you call it? Killing a, an ant with a hammer? Yeah. Or a mallet? Yeah, makes it hard. <laughs> yeah. Versus, you know, just good enough. I mean, if you're saying, hey, as long as we could email a report or provide a PDF to our customers, that that, that su- sufficed. Yeah. And in the end, you know, the best part was when we started hiring uh, account executives, then I could literally say, you know, I sold 3 million in a year. So if your quota is, you know, 800,000, there's no excuse. Right. You starve the oxygen out from any of that yeah. kibitzing about, yeah, I don't have all of what I need to get uh, <laughs> yeah. get the job done. That's a pretty interesting direction to head to with this conversation around setting of quota, setting of, of expectations, like getting into a, a scenario where with any kind of sales motion, whether it's B2C or B2B, getting kind of like people to be bought in, fully bought in, is such an important step, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so again, coming from the B2C world, not from B2B, I, at the beginning, started asking a lot of friends who were go-to-market leaders on the B2B side for sort of benchmarks of what are best practices for doing that? What are even best practices on what you should expect quotas to be for the different people, goals for the different people, how you should organize it? And uh, I think I've annoyed my friends you know, a lot about this. But in the end, you know, I think a lot of the time, there wasn't enough thought put into it and people were creating quotas or things that were not right for their business. And so it is worth taking some time or they were creating sort of a culture that was not right for their business. So in our case, you know, we sat down and we you know, wrote out the values that were very important for this business at this stage. Not necessarily the right values for other businesses or not sure. even the right values for a different stage. And you know, we made very clear, for instance, to every new AE, we care the most about customers being successful. And so number one is that. And hiring people for that characteristic was super important for us. In the end, because of our business model, when customers are successful, they use our product more and it drives more revenue for us. So it's led to our success. But we've set up pricing to be friendly for the customer in that way. We've set up the AEs to be successful in that way. We've made sure everyone is bought into that you know, way of doing things. And we've not tried, or we've been good about not hiring people who are not bought into that way of doing things. I think the other thing very early on the sales side. You know, I didn't try to build a sales team myself. So again, I'm not a traditional go-to-market leader. I hired one or two salespeople to make sure that I could hire them and train them and make them successful, just to prove that I could do it. And then we hired a, a VP. And so it you know made it very much easier to hire the VP because I'd proven that one, I could sell, two, mm-hmm. that we could onboard some AEs and they could sell. And so then his job was to come in and actually build a team. So I think sometimes people uh, wait on that and they sort of get bogged down for too long. But if it is going to be the major go-to-market motion, you do want to bring in somebody who's going to be able to do it. So we did that relatively early. So I'm really curious, especially on the sales side, You know, oftentimes when you mention the words customer success, people have, I don't know, they break out in hives or they think, oh, this, this is different somehow, some way. How did you screen for the right cultural fit in your opinion, for for the ingredients of of I'm putting the customer first. Yeah, one of the big things is is not anything that we did per se. Uh, I guess we screen for VPs who would be able to bring in people they've worked for before. 
Got it. So one of the big criteria of people we wanted to hire is that we knew they were people that could go and immediately hire a couple of people around them. And so that was a, you know, a huge shortcut because we didn't have to go and try to find out, you know, is this person very customer focused? You know, the VP could say, I've worked with them in the past. I know that of the people I've worked with, these are the ones that are very customer focused. You know, that's the biggest cheat that a lot of organizations forget is every new employee you have, you should be asking them who are the top two or three people they've ever worked with on whatever dimensions you think are important. Even if they don't want to leave today, go have a conversation with them because their boss eventually is going to piss them off. They're going to want a new job and you want to make sure you're their first call. So that was a big part of it. I think then in our interview process, we do a set of projects and have a set of questions to, you know, target those specific values that we care about. So we do check for it. But more than anything, it was finding the right leaders. Boy, that is such a smart way of, of thinking about it because it's so true, right? Like people follow good bosses almost if you chart everything on a, a whole career yeah. arc, not just like a very fixed time period. People follow good bosses. I've I've hired people from my team's many, many, many times yeah. over. And that's what you want. You want to find the the leaders who uh, where they have the ethos you want and they know what you're looking for yeah. and they can go out and execute against it. That's a really, really good um, <laughs> tip to pass forward. Yeah. I'm also kind of curious and, and hope, hopeful that we can go back a little bit in our conversation around the elements of kind of like borrowing from B2C inspirations, if you right. will, in the B2B sphere. We had, we had remarked kind of like pre-show around some of the sophistication levels <laughs> and maybe even some of the surprise related to how things are done B2B-wise. Your impressions, Alex? Yeah, yeah. You're, you're leading the witness here. So, you know, again, I'm a B2C marketer by trade, not B2B. I was shocked at the lack of sophistication on the B2B side. Now, in, to their credit, there's many fewer users. There's many fewer at-bats on B2B. And because the average contract value is higher, you you know if you lose two, it's not a big deal in B2C when the dollar value is lower. But in B2B, if you lose two, you miss your quarter. So people are much more sort of careful about it. But I think a lot of the concepts that we learned on the B2C side should be applied in B2B. So one way you're seeing this is you're seeing the explosion of PLG as a way of driving business. And largely, I look at it as just saying, well, you know, how do you use product and how do you use data about the individual to help drive usage? I think where that's gone too far is companies are saying we should be PLG at the expense of everything else, meaning no mm -hmm. sales. I think, you know, what I say to businesses that are only PLG is you have customers that are coming in and buying your product and you're not talking to them. Imagine how much people would buy if you had a conversation with them. So, right. you know, definitely I'm a believer in sort of doing both together. Uh, so I think there's, to your question, there's a lot of opportunity for, B2B marketers to think about everything in sort of a, a slightly more sophisticated way, meaning, and it's starting to happen now, meaning, you know, what is the uh, funnel that you have? You know, what is the conversion of every step? Uh, what is the, you know, the, what is the information you have about the user? And how do you use that to change the experience that, that user has in terms of whether it's automated or manual, but, you know, what are the sequences that they're getting? Uh, what are the channels you're engaging them with? Um, you know, what are the, the different products you're going to show them when they're in the product, even what are you going to cross sell them based off of the usage? You know, I think historically there was this idea that you paid for a smart, expensive salesperson and it was their job to figure it out. 
I believe in the ability to have software and tools that will massively enhance the capability of that human. Sometimes it's called human in the loop. So I never think we're going to take that human out of that. I'm not on the side that believes in full automation, but I believe in the power of tools to massively enhance what a salesperson can do. And for the salesperson, personally, if I were them, I would lean way into it because a salesperson that has better tools means they can hit a higher quota and make more money in the end of the year. So if I were a salesperson, I would be leaning into all of these sort of technologies that enhances and makes what they're doing more personalized. Yeah, I think that that's great advice. In fact, I, I've taken to calling that same phenomenon rather than human in a loop, I call it a mental prosthetic where you're using your tech stack to your greatest advantage. And, and I actually think that it benefits... Tell me if you agree with this. I think that it benefits the more the more junior the employee, the more they can lean into the tech stack and the more human they can become. Yeah. Oh, for sure. I think, you know, especially, you know, one of the tools that I love, you know, that we have is, you know, people use either Chorus or Gong, you know, I'm not going to try to settle that debate. But these tools are really great for helping people understand what's working and what's not working, for doing sort of after call reviews with their manager and really getting into it. And I think the people that are open and lean into that process, particularly early in their career, get a lot out of it. Because, you know, uh, to, to use words from somebody else, but you could weaponize the questions that you're asking, right? HubSpot was famous for this. So HubSpot would really teach people how they could ask questions to drive to the conclusions that they wanted and get people to be onboarded. And so I think, you know, we have a few people from HubSpot who joined us. And so I've learned their terminology. But I think, you know, that's a very important skill to learn. And you're not going to learn it on your own, but with the right tools, with the right sort of you know practices, you can. Would you be willing to kind of join a few of the concepts that we've discussed together, almost in a little bit of a mini mock role play? Because I think that what you're hitting on is a very important motion that yeah. if mastered, sales becomes X more effective. So weaponizing the questions you're asking, especially with the knowledge, and we can throw this into a real regal voice context around some of those lessons learned on behalf of, of even how you approached people before with like kind of a picture of today yeah. and a picture of like what could be done tomorrow. Give us a flavor of your own talk tracks along those lines. Yeah, I mean, again, I, I was talking about a little bit before, perhaps, but you know, for a greenfield customer, you know, very good question. In our case, is you know, are you going to hit your growth goals this year, right? Because that all of all of a sudden, out of the gate, gets the person thinking about what are their goals, how are they going to hit it, what is the gap that they have, you know, what are the next three tests they're going to run to try to get there, and they're in the right mindset. So that's a very good way to start the conversation there. You know, another one in in the sort of greenfield world, you know, when you're selling to a marketer, is you know, what's your marginal cap? Uh, this is a slightly more sophisticated concept in marketing, but a lot of businesses report on the average cost of acquiring a user. Today, what most of them are starting to think about is what is the marginal cost to acquire a user? Even if the average on Google is $200 per new user, if your marginal spend is at $800 a user, well, you should be thinking about what are the channels, not that can beat 200 but what are the channels that can beat 800 And that starts getting them thinking about the channels in a different way. Um, so that's an example of the Greenfield side. On the side where uh, you know it, they're doing sales today, you know some of the questions that we ask, for instance, are where would you like your answer rate to be? And it's a leading question. You know, sure. of course, everyone wants their answer rate to be higher, but it allows them to start having a conversation around you know what their answer rate is today, uh, why it's not there. People don't know who's calling. They're being flagged as spam. They're not calling at the right time. They're not using SMS, and it drives a very productive conversation. 
So I think, you know, it's again, you, probably the lawyers who trained in court are much better than I am, but you're just trying to lead the witness in that case. Well, and what you may even find, tell me if I'm like dead wrong about this, but when you're asking that question, where would you like your answer rate to be? You may find people don't even know. Yeah, which is another great conversation. You know, so you'd be surprised how many times we talk with people and find out that their current tech stack does not allow them to understand what's working and what's not. And so one of the things that I, I lament specifically in phone sales is the fact that the outcome today where people are being spammed by numbers they don't know is not driven by bad people who are doing this, but is largely driven by bad technology. Because what happens is it, it, you know, those conversations work and they're trying to get more conversations with their customers. And the only tools they have in the, in the old generation omni-channel contact center is call faster and call more. So yeah. every month, as their boss tells them to drive more revenue, they call faster and they call more. Call fast, and guess what happens? All of a sudden, your answer rate goes down, you get flagged as spam, and it's a worst outcome for everybody. So instead, we give them a different set of solutions to the same problem, right? We go and say, well, you can brand the calls. We can stop them from being flagged as spam. You can have a journey builder to drive calls at the right moment. You can SMS and two-way SMSs to also allow SMS as a channel to engage people. So here's a new set of things that are going to let you drive to that same outcome. It's almost like rethinking the problem from its very root, like like you had said earlier, as the seed kernel for why Regal exists in the first place, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's yeah, actually on the, super on, the hard. S, on the SDR side. The other very good advice I was given, uh, you know, somebody who was a CRO at a much sort of later stage company, but saw it from you know sort of our early days to much larger, is you know you know, remember to talk about your customer, not about you. Yeah. And I'd say this is the single thing that SDRs, BDRs are most likely to do wrong is they they send an email or they show up on a call and they show up and throw up, right? They immediately start talking about what their product does. And I, I don't, you know, hold it against them. Like it's a, you know, a good, you know, starting point, but they need to learn to do more. And I think the first thing that we get our sort of BDRs to do and our AEs to do, especially as they're new, is go to a company site go and try to buy the product, right? So yeah. you know, Google the company, click on their site, see what the landing page is, type in your email and your phone number, go try to buy the product, see, do they call you? Do they text you? Is it flagged as spam? What is their cadence after that? When you get on the phone, what does the person say? What do they know about where you are in the funnel or not know? As you give them answers, do they change what they're doing? Uh, you know, As you try it multiple times and get different salespeople, how different is, is, the, is the experience, right? If every salesperson is doing something different, I guarantee that you're not doing it correctly, right? Because you have some that are doing much better. So you should have everyone doing it the way that's better, not everyone doing it their own way. And so that means that when our BDRs and salespeople go into the conversation, the first thing they can say uh, back to some of the positioning I was using before is, you know, you guys are a fantastic company. I was surprised that you don't do X, Y, and Z, right? right. Or, hey, did you know, I just wanted to make sure you knew that like when you're calling people, it's showing up as spam. Or, hey, did you know that like I've got four different calls from four different people on your team and the, the talk track they're using is completely different. You know, here's exactly the talk track. Here's the recordings and make it easy for them to forward it internally. So in that sense, people talk about also providing value. Not only are you talking about the business, but you're providing value instantly. The other thing we teach our team particularly is we're in a space where we're very lucky. Our product works. So it does what it's supposed to do. It drives incremental revenue for these brands. And so I tell our, our BDRs and E's, don't be sheepish. Don't say, you know, hey, maybe if one day you think you might want to test it, just say, look, we have the solution that solves this. I don't know if the, the time is now. I really don't know where you are. But when the time is right, let's have the conversation because this will solve your problem. 
it's it's a little bit of a nuanced switch, but it's important. You know, don't be sheepish about what your product does. Be clear what it is and what it isn't. Don't lie about your product. I think too many BDRs say it does many things that it doesn't. Yeah. But say exactly what it does and then know that you know you need to have a conversation with that buyer about where this sits on their priority list. It may not be the most important thing for them now. That's fine. But when it does become the most important thing, or if it is the largest opportunity, help them understand that so they can rank it first in the things they want to do. Boy, that right there was a masterclass in what I heard coming back around was a transfer of confidence between your the folks that work for your company and a buying situation that whenever you figure it out, whenever this becomes a priority, hey, we're the, we're the thing you should think of. Yeah. Yeah, Which in our world particularly, right? Contracts on contact center software could be a year, two years, three years. When you talk to somebody, doesn't mean that today is the day that they're going to buy from you. But right. it does mean that today is the day where they learned about the solution and where they can start thinking about where it fits in in their, in their sort of buying process over the next couple of years. Well, and in your example, which I think is also genius, the ability to provide ready examples of where gaps exist in their current status quo, in their current yeah. go-to-market or how they touch customers, how the experience was for even our pseudo-customer engagement is, is real. Right? Like you're not talking about like hypotheticals. You're talking about how I, when I wanted to be a customer of yours, was treated. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing that that I like that I've learned is not as traditional in sales. We don't organize by geos, we organize by industry and sub-industry. And the reason for that is I believe strongly that as a buyer, I always I always hated a lot of the SaaS buying process because I meet a lot of sellers who didn't know my industry, didn't understand my use case. Right. So by specializing by industry now, we can fix some of that by making sure that a seller starts understanding healthcare. Well, particularly within healthcare, starts understanding uh, Botox centers and really understands what does a Botox center need to do to be successful? What are the metrics that matter? How do they talk about their customer? What are the practices that are really important once they're live that our customer success team is going to help them do so that when they're getting on the phone, they're not having a faux pas or a gaffe, but they're actually coming on saying, Look, you know, you know, this is what I've learned about your industry, and here's the changes that are happening, and this is why I'm so excited to work with you because really we know that this is going to work for you specifically. So I, I know that it's perhaps a minority opinion, but I strongly encourage people to organize by industry and allow the AEs the time to or BDRs the time to learn that industry very deeply. I think that that's also a very very smart suggestion because one of the things that that seems to me that crops up all the time is are the dead giveaways. Like not every industry refers to their business as having customers. Yeah, or some in our case even a funnier one is some people call it uh, phone sales, some people call it concierge, some people call it admissions, some people call it, you know, sales right. assistance. You know, if you're using, you know, if you go to a company in education and say do you do phone sales, they go what? You know, but you say hey, you know, do you have admissions? They go of course. So yes. you know, it is to your point, the language is really important. Yeah. And and the minute you're inauthentic and not speaking their language is the minute yeah. you become irrelevant to them, isn't it? Yeah, very quickly. Same in an email. You know, as when I was a marketing leader and now sort of as a leader, you know, I get, I'm sure you do too, a lot of these emails. And I, I read them to be perfectly honest. Like <laughs> I read them. But very quickly, like I look for like, does this person know what they're talking about and is there value to what we're doing? And if there is, like I'll either respond to them and ask them a question or I'll forward it to the right leader. So I think this idea that like people don't look at those emails, maybe there's some that don't, but I'd say a lot of people are looking for the next idea. 
And if you give it to them, they're going to engage. It's so funny you say that because I, I feel like I've been on the stump on this particular front for, shoot, years now, which is, I think that there's a lot of executives out there that if they thought about outbound or they thought about pumping, you know, kind of brands and solutions providers for information, that it could be a very rich and vibrant channel. Yeah. However, however, that's counterbalanced by the fact that, yes, the greatest sin in all of most cold outbound is it is all about them. Me, me, me all day long without a thought <laughs> in the brain to making it valuable for the person you're reaching out to. Yeah. And one shout out I'll, uh, I'll give is I've started using a product called Gated, which uh, you know may not be today a salesperson's best friend, but I actually think in the long run is going to be. So yeah. Gated uh, basically allows me to send all emails that are from unknown senders to a different inbox and automatically sends them a reply, basically saying, do you know Alex? If yes, it sends my inbox or it gives them the option to pay a donation. And it doesn't go to me, right? It goes to American Alpine Club or whatever nonprofit I want to uh, promote. And if they pay the donation, Again, I'll look at it. So I'll look at the email and take the time to make sure that it's, you know, it's now a human that sent it. They want me to see it. And, you know, I'll respond to them if there's something interesting. So again, to the point, like people will, if you're sending something worthwhile, they'll engage with it. What you really shouldn't do is just send endless amounts of marketing automation with no thought to like who the buyer is or no thought to what responses they're using or inbox management they're using. They're not, you know, that makes it so it's easy for them to not look at. Well, and I think that the other thing that's that's relevant, tying a few of these concepts back together, where does value lie? Well, value, in my opinion, lies in what other people, just like me, have already figured out. Yeah. You know, having those insights of my peers, of people that I would otherwise, you know, index highly on or respect, or you know, they they're solving similar problems that to the ones I've had. Like to me, that kind of sharing is never in it's never unvaluable. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah. The 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 other thing that I love now in B two B is there's a lot of great new products, and so without naming the specific products, right? You can tell when customers leave and go to a new company. You can obviously tell what company they come from. You can tell, you know, all kinds of very interesting things that allow you to do your job better. And so I think take advantage of the products so that you can be smarter in how you're reaching people. And don't you know? Reach out cold to very large numbers of people. Use the products again to target what you're doing to the right person. If it was somebody who used your product and went to a new company, you know, you should be talking to them and saying, "Hey, uh, you know, uh, did you like our product while you were using it?" Yeah. You know, if the answer is no, well, then you have a different problem. But if the answer is yes, <laughs> you know, great. Now you have a new proponent. It doesn't mean you're going to sell it today, but that's a great sure. thing to learn. Yeah, I mean, what you're describing is trigger-based selling, which I think mm -hmm. is some of the strongest rationale for engagement yeah. ever, right? Hey, I noticed this about you. You're potentially experiencing this. Let's talk, you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I think, you know, in general, again, both in our business at Regal and in our B2B motion today, we try to think about, you know, the buyer's experience and we start there. And so I, I've been the buyer when it comes to marketing software and B2C. So like I emote very significantly around this internally, they, they know, you know, and and if you know, if we think about it in that way, we're going to create a, a go-to-market motion that's good for the buyer. We're going to create pricing that's good for the buyer, a contract that's good for the buyer, a customer success team that's good for the buyer. And you know, then you know, lo and behold, what happens is that buyer turns around and goes, "Oh my God, this is great! I love this." So yeah. I, you know, I see it as our job, and I tell our team that it's our job to make those first you know 
we, we announced recently we're over 100 customers now, but to make the first two or 300 customers wildly successful, even if it's not the most efficient thing on the customer success side. If you do, the story is going to write itself. Because yeah. those customers are going to tell other people and everybody at those customers are going to go to other companies and you're going to naturally grow quite well. But you know, if you make the mistake in those first two or three hundred customers of pissing them off or doing things that are not good for them when they ask for them and they tell you they want something, you're going to have a really hard time. Yeah, that, that's a good axiom uh, to live by. Don't piss off your customers. <laughs> yeah, it sounds obvious. But you know, I think a lot of companies push on you know, again, to the point before, push on process or push on efficiency and customer success too early. Mm. And, and it's not the right thing to do. You know, do what's right for your customer. Fair, fair, fair points. Alex, this has been quite the, the, the fast-paced, really deep and insightful conversation. And thank you for that. That's, it's been awesome. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. For those in the audience that might want to get in touch with you, either to find out more about Regal or, or yourself, where should they go? Yeah, so you can go to regal.io or just email me at hello at regal.io and I'll connect you with the right person internally. Love it. Love it. Maybe even an unscalable thing right there, but yeah. (laughs) But they know that you're at least reading. I know. I love the email. So, you know, I put it on my LinkedIn. If you go to my LinkedIn, there's an email address there. You know, I think it's important for people to be able to reach you. That is so. I'll tell one one other story that I think is valuable for people to hear. When I was at uh, Angie, one of the teams that I ran very early on was the customer service team. And I was not from that world, but whenever things really were bad, they escalated up to me. And I, I can't tell you how many times I was offered a job or offered significant amounts of money because I helped fix something for that problem. And it's not that I just gave them a refund. It's that, you know, I would sit down, I'd listen to them, and I'd Mm -hmm. really try to understand why it was caused and understand how we could go and fix it in a way that future customers did not have the same issue. And I explained to them what I was doing and why. And I think as people understood that that was why I was doing it and why I cared about it, they got a lot out of it. So I guess the point of it is to say, there are going to be moments where you disappoint customers. But those are actually moments to have... Uh, uh, sort of build a deeper relationship and build actually a much bigger opportunity with that customer. And maybe you'll get a job offer out of it too. But you know, go out of your way when you disappoint customers to really listen to them and try to understand what's going on, uh, whether it's in a sales process. So if, if we have a sales process that we think is going well and they don't buy, I send an email personally to the buyers and I don't ask for the business, but I ask them to tell me, did we disappoint them in the sales process? What, did, what could we have done better? And we get great answers out of that. Same, obviously, on the customer success side. If there's something that doesn't go right, you know, I'll go to the customers and ask them what it was and try to understand it so that we don't do it again. I think, man, you're just full of sage advice because it's so easy to to get caught up in our own talk tracks of justification or process or this is what our policies are before we take the time to listen and understand. Yeah, and you can always say, you can always say, you know what, I listened to you, but our policy is this and I'm sorry we can't change it. It doesn't mean by listening to them that you're going to violate your policy. It just means that you've actually taken the time to care about what happened to them and why uh, and take the time to, to see if you do want to change what's going on. Skipping that step is dangerous as heck, isn't it? Yeah, for sure. Boy, with this this could probably be a very long conversation because you, you are just full of insights and wisdom. Thank you for sharing with us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. 